I cannot believe there is a university or a college that sees no way a student could graduate in four years. I mean, so Matt, I think, I think this is part of the reason that we're talking about all of these things today is because I 100% believe that there is no college or university that intends for that to be true. My concern is that if you have not revisited that question recently, it may indeed be true for your campus and how would you know? Friends, so good to see many of you joining us through LinkedIn Live. Hello, I'm Rachel Phillips Buck, VP for Student Success at Ferris Resources. You've joined us for Cap and Gown. I'm joined by Matt Boisvert, our president. Hello, Matt. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for having me join you. Yeah. Um, okay, I have a long list of things for us to talk about today, but first, right. I want to talk about some joyful things. I okay. have been laughing around our office because. We just got on Friday an ice maker, and you have oh. never seen a happier group of people. I got a fun today, yeah. yeah, today our reflection is like, how have we lived so long without an ice maker in this office? It makes like um, sonic ice. I don't know if everybody knows what that is, but what do they call it? Like pellet ice? Yeah. And so we were rejoicing right before we started. Braden made some iced coffee. You made some iced coffee. I've got ice in my iced tea. It's just, it has caused so much joy around this office. So that's really fun. Um, also, we, Brayden just brought in a gigantic coloring thing that she put out with all of these markers. So every time I walk through the room, I get to color something. She's like, this is going to help us feel like we've completed something small every day. <laughs> like I colored in a circle. Have you colored on it yet? I haven't yet. I need to get to it. Okay, well, you do need to get to it. Anyway, all that to say that our theme of the year is uh, joyful, and I feel like we're doing a really great job of building that in. We are on Capping Down today going to talk about the State of the Union special because there's a lot of things going on. But first, if you all have been listening over the last couple of weeks, I have outsourced the worst job I have, which is Joy Words. And Matt's going to do it. But I would like to call to your attention the complexity of the words he's chosen because he can sound them out versus the words that I chose, like Kintsugi and Mo Mojo. Mojo. Okay. So will you lead us through our joy words? Right. Well, this is our, our book, Reading from Happiness Found in Translation by Tom Loomis. Um, the first word of today, Rachel, Yes. is... Gemütlichkeit, God bless which is you. German. Okay. Gemütlichkeit, which means the feeling of home, Aww. a deep sense of comfort, coziness, and security, an atmosphere that is full of heart and soul. And I feel like Gemütlichkeit was definitely a thing that we experienced this weekend as it rained all weekend and it was just a good time. Yeah. Of feeling comfort at home. Cozy, so. for sure. Okay, and that's a good one. Uh, the next one is sola free, which is Icelandic. Sola free. Um, and it is a sun holiday. So imagine being in Iceland and the sun comes out. Yeah. It's when workers are granted unexpected time off to enjoy a particularly warm and sunny day, the joy of unexpected freedom, which... I think we talk a little bit about later on with our State of the Union. It's so amazing because it's like the opposite of a snow day. It's like the equivalent of how we feel with a snow day. Like you're supposed to go to work, but then you can't because you're having a snow day. This is a sun holiday. Yeah. Well, you know, growing up in Seattle, we had a, if the sun came out, it was a big day. Yeah. It's good. All right. So solo free. And then I love this one. This is Mabuki Mavuki. So it's Mabuki Mavuki. And... It is, I I love this. So it is, there's three kind of definitions. Where is that from? Uh, this is Swahili. Okay. So it is to take off in flight and dance wildly, to shed clothes in order to move more freely, but really uninhibited physical expressions of joy. Oh. You know, I think our kids do this. Oh, They're yeah. really mavuki mavuki. And I think we need to be... <laughs> 
You know, thinking that is that I make up words all the time. So my daughter always asks me, like, is that like hoopy choop? Is that a real word or you made that up? I'm like, I made that up. I'm pretty sure if I brought this one home, she'd be like, that's not a real word. Mabuki Mabuki is a great one. So there are the words of joy. Awesome. That's great. Well, you guys, we are doing a State of the Union special today. The reason is because so many things are go. Was that your ice? No, there's literally every paper on my desk. Oh. Yo, I just got a new desk for this. So I'm gonna I'm gonna turn my camera off. Okay. I'm just gonna start collecting and make sure I see if I can get an order. Okay, sounds good. Um, that may be pretty catastrophic because we may not have any idea what we're supposed to be talking about without those papers. Okay, so State of the Union special because. We have a lot of legal things that are starting to happen um, that are going to set up your summer. So your summer projects, we've been talking about that. You need to be thinking about some of the changes that are going to be made to FAFSA for Title IX. We have um, new initiatives that you're thinking about for the fall. And so I just went through and collected. I, it's really interesting. Last week when I was with Sherry, I was like, man, State of the Union is pretty sparse. I think it's because everyone was writing articles for this week. So there's just a lot of really robust things that I want for us to talk about. And I'm going to use these State of, the Un uh, State of the Union articles to help us with some broad philosophical conversations as well as we're thinking about um, serving our students. So that is why we're doing the State of the Union today. How'd it go? I've got them. I've got okay. them. I don't know if they're in order, but I've got them. So let's start on the State of the Union. All right. The first one um, that I want to talk about, Matt, is this. Have you heard about this new term that's called swatting? So this is shorthand for people falsely reporting an act of violence in the hope of getting a SWAT team to intervene. The reason I'm bringing this up is that it all of a sudden has become very, very common on campuses. So Boston, this happened to Boston University. This happened to um, Catholic University on uh, America's campus. Basically, what happens is somebody calls in, there's either a bomb threat or there's an active shooter. Usually, it's very vague. They're like, they're, they're, this is a room where somebody, there's an active shooter. Um, there were 22 of these swatting attempts over the past several weeks, including two at Catholic universities in D.C. in eight colleges in Texas. This is also happening at K-12s. So what's really difficult about it is that the schools obviously have to respond like this is real. They can't be like, I mean, that's nondescript. We're not going to do anything. So they're like doing their full response. I mean, that's why it's called swatting. It's like when you send the SWAT team. Right. So they're doing their emergency text. Everybody shelter in place. We have an active shooter. All the students are freaking out. Then they kind of do this review, go to the place, and then they can't find anything. Uh so a couple of things about this. First of all, what's interesting, this just happened at the University of Oklahoma on April 7th. They had this swatting. They can't trace the phone calls, but in this case they could, and it was coming from outside of the country. So that's a way to really mess with everybody to, to kind of, I mean, it is like a bomb threat in the old days, right? But the FBI clearly is taking this very seriously. I'm thinking about it from our students' perspective because it does not matter if it's made up. If you get a text that there's an active shooter on your campus, right? Like, uh, what do they call that? Shelter in place. Yeah. And for however the amount of time is until they confirm it, you still have had to live through this really traumatic event where you feel scared for your life. Your parents are worried. You're texting them like this is what's happening. And so schools are, yes, trying to solve the problem of what are we going to do to be able to vet these a little better, which if you have an idea for that, that would be awesome because that is a really difficult thing. The FBI is like, yeah, we've got some problems with this. But also, so we have to solve that problem. But also we have to solve all of the chain of problems that come from students being fearful for their lives, parents being afraid for their kids' lives for whatever amount of time that is. Right. So, um, well, and you think about, I mean, some 
there are students on your campus who actually have survived or, or been in that kind of real terror. And yeah. so to have that brought back out, it's it's horrific. It's an awful trend. And what'd you say, just in the last month, there's 20? 20, 22 in the last month. So, <clears throat> and we don't need to put the burden on our colleges or campuses, you know? For sure. I think that aftercare is really the right conversation to have. So many of these schools then close campus and then have these like pop-up mental health resources for students to engage in. But what a who, what kind of a person is what I would like to know. Especially if this is becoming like a, I don't know, just if it's coming from, well, I guess it doesn't matter where it's coming from. It's kind of an act of terrorism against yeah, the campus, sure. right? For sure. That's right. Okay. The next um, article that I want to bring your attention to is from the New York Times. It's called The College Data You Probably Can't Find But Definitely Need. This is one that I would go and read for yourself. Um, it basically gives four or five different, um, what would you call these, Matt? They're like surveys. I mean, they're, they're awesome tools. So, <clears throat> and it comes out of parents who were frustrated because they didn't feel like they had the right amount of information to make a good decision about college. And so a lot of people have gone about to solve that problem yeah. on their own. <clears throat> So this article says, in what industry do so many customers not know the price until after they apply for the privilege of making the purchase in the first place, right? So I don't know what it is, but I'm going to apply and then you're going to tell me and then I have to make my decision. So a couple of problems that uh, parents were trying to solve. The first one is the identification of what schools can I afford and can my student actually get into? Do you want to say more about that? No, I'm I'm just happy because I found the article. <laughs> In your stack of papers. Um, so this comes out of a parent who is trying to figure out, like, of all of the schools in the United States, which ones can my kids get into and which ones can we afford? And so he went in and created, this is called Kickstart. Uh, there is um, like a subscription fee. It's like, I think it's like $50, but it says of the schools that you want to go to based on your test scores, here are your reach scores, here are your likely, uh, sorry, your reach schools, your likely schools, so that you have a really clear picture of who you should be um, applying for. So I think that's really helpful. He would really like um, for the government to say that schools have to release their common data set, which is what this tool is built on top of by December every year so that we can be looking forward, right? <clears throat> like college scorecard took like a That's year a off, right? Yeah, it's a real problem. And, and a lot of times, you know, schools are late sending the data in. So um, yeah, that's, I think what's great about all of these as you go through them is that, you know, real, um, parents, they're trying to solve a real problem. And so each one of these has a different take or spin on how they do it. One of the hardest things is just acquiring all the data on all of the schools so that you can have a good, you know, I guess, even understanding of all of the schools. So, yeah. Um, so this idea of the net price calculator, so a lot of times schools will have this on their website, but every school that you apply to, you have to go and fill it out, go and fill it out, go and fill it out, right? So this um, mom was like, hey, I need to understand how much college is actually going to cost me. So she created the Merit More, M-E-R-I-T-M-O-R-E. -E. It's free. And you can go in and fill out, basically, it's like a price calculator, except you only have to fill it out once. And then you say, okay, these are the schools that I want it applied to. So that idea of just making, like, uh, comparing apples to apples is really, really helpful. And I think for our practitioners, just to know where your school is in that. Because as you're thinking about, do we need to change our award letters? Do we need to change our pricing? That would be really helpful to see how you fall in that uh, stack of schools. So, you know, I have a soon-to-be, well, she's <clears throat> junior now. She's she's looking. Um, and so I put her, you know, her ACT and her GPA. <clears throat> and you can add uh, other things like how many AP courses you've taken and other involvement. And it's great because it's free. Now, the interesting thing is it doesn't have every school in the database. In fact, there was one school that I was 
curious to see where she matched up, right? And it wasn't available. It was just all blank, no data. And so if your school, you might want to go to this, this uh, merit more and make sure that your school's on the list. And if not, figure out how to update their database so you'd be in there. That was weird. Yeah. Um, it's not like, I mean, this is not a small school and it's, you know, especially in its region is, is uh, pretty solid. So. Okay. Another problem that a mom solved, this one is unbelievable to me. So this mom had a son who wanted mm -hmm. to apply to a school and she was looking at the statistics and she saw that the graduate, the four-year graduation rate for males at the school was very low. And so she said, okay, son, I want you to go in and talk to your advisor and I want a lockstep four-year plan for how you're going to graduate in four years. So we know your major. I want, you know, Matt, sometimes schools do degree plans, but it's like not really for the whole time. It might be like per semester or per year or something like that. Yeah. And the mom was like, I want to know how you're going to graduate in four years. Take into account summers, all of that kind of stuff. It says he came out white as a ghost. They told him they didn't think there was any way he could graduate in four years. And she was like, I'm sorry, what? So when I'm taking on the cost of college and I'm calculating it for four years and the school knows that this student cannot graduate in four years, that increases the cost by 25% for me. Yeah. Probably more because the tuition probably will have gone up, up, right? So you remember we did this article a couple of weeks ago about best practice for your award letters. The idea that you include net price before, so after grants, but before we apply loans, because you need to be able to see this is how much it's going to cost me. And then what do I need to do in order to yeah. cover that? So this um, more college data, M-O-O-R-E college data, you can go in and it will show uh, that, that the comparison of that. So I love that. I cannot believe there is a university or a college that sees no way a student could graduate in four years. I mean, so Matt, I think, I think this is part of the reason that we're talking about all of these things today is because I a hundred percent believe that there is no college or university that intends for that to be true. My concern is that if you have not revisited that question recently, it may indeed be true for your campus. And how would you know? Right. So if you don't have somebody, so somebody retired and we changed when that course is, and we were just talking about on our team about how somebody can change a thing that seems inconsequential, like, oh, nobody's going to care about this thing, right? Like we can just change that class to February or fall instead of spring. And it's like, you have no idea that then that means your students cannot graduate in four years. So I think a great project is to have kind of a task force with your registrar where you're going through and auditing. Can our freshmen in the fall finish in four years? And what is the plan to be able to do that? seems like that's a job for a department chair for every major under them to make sure that that is. So it's exactly what you said. If, if your school does not provide a complete path for that major to graduate in four years, you know, so that a degree plan would actually be, you could actually see it. Here's yeah. first semester, second semester, all the way through eight. Um, and here's what you can do in the summer. If that hasn't been mapped out for these students, then yeah, there's a real problem. You know, I'm thinking about on our team, all of the positions at a university that are represented and Braden represents our registrar position. And so maybe need to ask her about some guidance for that. Cause surely in the catalog, I I'm sure she would be like, yeah, here are the four ways that you can make sure a student can graduate in four years. So I will dig into her expertise on that one. Well, the other side of this story is we don't know what this student said when he went in, if he was like, Hey, I want to take it easy. I just want 12 true. hours. You know, that is very true. That's, that actually was one of my favorite things when I was a practitioner because we would have parents who would be very mad at me because I'd never tried to contact their student. I never offered them help. I never, you know, and then I would go into the 360 system and I would just expand. Here's on this date, I did this, on this day, this. And it was such a, it was like you could just see the student kind of melting and the well. mom like <laughs> turning, yeah, turning, like, okay, I wasn't getting the whole story there. So, yeah, good point. All right. Our next State of the Union is about chat GPT. You guys, I know. Hold on. A what? Well, on the other one, there's another one that's a great oh. resource. Oh, there is another one, but I was going to I was gonna skip it. But if you think it's great, tell us about it. 
No, it is. It's called College Tables. And what I love about this, so again, here's a data geek who's pulled in data from all over. And I mean, like he, he was saying, like, it, I want to know more than just do they have a great sports team. I want to know what the biome is. I want to know, I mean, really like broke down. I, I want to know, are, are they going to be in the desert or in the mountains or like all, all the, what's the weather? What are the, like, if they go to that state, what are the laws and how does that agree or disagree with what we believe in? And, and so it's super comprehensive uh, going through. So for a lot of schools, it's like, I don't know, pick, pick a state, don't know a lot about that school or what's going on. And this college tables was created by Brian O'Meara um, in uh, Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And he, he decided to solve the problem and it's free as well. It's a, it's a great resource. Really. It's great. Good. It's a good one. All right. Okay. I know everyone's sick of hearing about chat GPT. However, it is growing in um, popularity and also they keep doing iterations. So now we're, I think on GPT four, which is getting more and more robust um, so there is an opinion in Inside Higher Ed that's called, yes, we're in a chat GPT crisis. Here's what I want to say about this. So one of the reflections out of this opinion is that there's kind of growing apathy with faculty who are like, yeah, there's nothing to be done about it. And the good students are going to do the work and the bad students are going to cheat and there's nothing we can do. And they'll be well served if they do the work. And if not, they're going to fail in life. So there's there's that, right? And this author is like, okay, that seems like a little bit much <laughs> to just be like, yeah. you're not going to use these tools that are being available for you if you're a good person and you right. if you're a bad person, right? And so she's like, first of all, what I see a lot is there are people who are saying, well, we can use them for some things. Like you can write the first draft using it, but then you have to come back and revise and go to the second draft yourself. And she's like, in human history, there are very few times where we would say, here's a perfectly good tool that got us from A to B, but we're definitely not going to use it for B to C, right? For the most yeah. part, if the tool is working to get us where we're going, then we are going to double down on it. So she said, I believe by the end of the spring term, more than half of my writing assignments, the ones that I made because they were so clever and engaging, will be authored by ChatGPT4. Uh, and she's really saying, I think that we need to be looking at this as a crisis. So we talked about this months ago when it was just the tip of the iceberg. But the idea that we have to reassign the value of higher education away from content to more human things, I think is really interesting. So she says, first of all, online courses are going to be the hardest because one of the ways to sort of combat uh, this AI generated content is to be in a room with people and to talk about things, right? To say, yeah okay, you submitted this paper, help me understand how that relates to your life and tell me about this. Have that real conversation. Online classes, way harder. She's like, the truth is that so many of those, what do they call it, Matt, where you have to write back? You know what I'm talking about? Where it's like discussion questions on online yeah, classes. Yeah, your discussion posts. Discussion posts. She's like, all of those are going to be written by AI because how would you check that? that that's happening. So the online community is going to be a really, really difficult one. She said, yeah. especially given the fact that those often are non-traditional students who have extra burdens in their life. So they want to be more efficient and quick. So if you can say to AI, hey, write me two paragraphs about this and put this in, why wouldn't you unless we give you some very good reasons not to do it? So that's yeah. one problem to solve. So Rachel, I I just thinking about this in terms of a tool, and I don't know if this is the right analogy, but if you think about, <clears throat> so as you were saying, like faculty, you were like, well, the smart students won't use it. Let's just say you saw two people trying to make a fire, and one is trying to scratch two rocks together to cut to start a fire, and another just picked up a big lighter and lit the fire. Now, Who's who smarter? would you say was smarter? <laughs> yeah. Right. So let's start there. It, but the question isn't the who can start a fire. It's the why are we starting a fire? 
And, and if we spend an hour trying to make a fire versus here's the, here's the fire, now let's have a conversation around the fire, right? Yeah. So I don't know if that's a great analogy, but- well, What can we do with the fire? Or why did the fire, you light it with a big, but how did that work, right? There are these more intensive questions that's about synthesis and application to your life and your experience that I think is really important. This author talks about like AI free zones where it's like, yes, that's a tool that you use. But when you come to the class, we close our computers and we look at each other and we have real conversations um, and really moving away from if content is everywhere, it's at your fingertips all the time. So that's not what we're doing in higher education. What we need to be doing is talking about critical thinking, innovation, problem solving, ethical decision making, which, you know, when we talked about how technology is created to make you crazy and distract you, we, we need some good conversations about what is ethical when it comes to that. This idea of how we take the best parts of humans and we actually invest in those things to make them better because kids aren't having to stay up all night to type content that already exists and could you could get it with the click of a button. Right? I think it's interesting just can probably beating that analogy to death. But but if you think about the I think it's you like to make a fire. I love making fires. I think there's a there's a science to how you build a fire, right? And there also would be a science into how you prompt or lead chat GPT into a response. And, yeah, and so even if you just had everyone, here's, here's what we want, chat GPT, you create your prompts, and then we're going to go through in class and talk about Compare. what was the best prompt, right? Yeah. yeah I think that's, that's, a, that's using critical thinking or, or starting to stretch the, um, how do I just inform it or how can I be smarter in how I use it? Yeah, her conclusion is that the kinds of things that happen over a synchronous conversation or a shared goal, um, those are things that we can teach our students how to do really well. And it's really nice because businesses has, have been asking for our students who graduate to be able to do those things. And now it's like we can take our focus in some ways off of the memorization and move it into everybody look at each other and have a conversation. How are we going to solve this? How are we going to be innovative? So I think that that's a really, um, I, I bring it up in our state of the union special because I think it has to be addressed before the fall. I think you have to have somebody on your campus who is an expert in this, who is leading faculty in the same way they did when we had to go online, who's saying we're going to have classes and we're going to talk about how you can do your assignments differently. I think it is going to be a really, really big disruption because the students who are using it now have found out about it. The students who are coming to your campus in the fall have already been using it. They've been using it in school. And now they're going to come in with expertise. And she's saying, we cannot, Matt, you and I talk about this all the time with kids. You cannot gate lock your way around technology problems with kids. You have to have conversations about why you shouldn't or you should or it's a bad idea. And you you have to make them smart. You can't just say we're going to lock it down because they will always find a way. (laughs) They'll always find a way. And if, I mean, there's always that innovator uh, among the the group, who's going to be teaching the others, uh, you know the the maven of ChatGPT yeah. among them. I love what you said. I think the the comparison is actually when you think about like the the mobile uh, learning initiative. So yeah. how do we use tablets and iPhones and build that into our curriculum? I think that's what we need uh, on your campus. Is that you have you have a person who is thinking about this and building focus groups with students and other faculty and thinking, uh, reaching out to other thought leaders. I mean, you know, OpenAI, let's talk to OpenAI and find out where they're headed or where we're headed with BARD, yeah. right? And, and get their thoughts because it should not take away from liberal arts. It, right. it has to be, we have to figure out a way that it enhances liberal arts, just like maybe moving to the BIC lighter could make our time much more efficient around the fire. For sure. 
Um, this next one I love so much because I actually think that it is such a great connection to this idea of chat GPT and freeing up our time to do things that are more important, like connect with each other. So this is an article in Inside Higher Ed. It's called Why More Colleges Should Focus on Knitting. Knitting, that's knitting. Like I crochet, I don't knit. Your daughter knits, right, Matt? Uh, she crochets mostly. Oh, she does. Okay. Yeah. So this is about this faculty member who teaches a class where she teaches, among other things, it's called like applied learning, but she teaches her students how to knit. And here's what she says about it. She says, learning is about so much more than learning skills and acquiring knowledge, which is what we just said with ChatGPT. Learning is not just acquiring skills and knowledge. There's a much broader frame on that that we can put. So she says, first of all, in her class, she has students who generally have been very academically successful. So they get good grades. They fit in in college. They have a sense of belonging. They know what they're doing, right? They can navigate the system. And she, when she teaches them to knit, she says, I want all of them to experience feelings of discomfort failure, frustration, because those are things that so many students experience every day. And True. when they're learning to knit, they grow empathy for young learners, especially those who are struggling. So if for no other reason, I love that so much. Yeah. I mean, that is Carol Dweck, growth mindset all the way, right? Yeah. So many of these high achieving students who are kind of coming at you with a fixed mindset, and this is an opportunity to, to put them in this uncomfortable place, right? And she then makes, like, she puts that on the table and she says, let's talk about growth mindset because this is about applied learning, right? So she says, what do you feel about your just innate ability to knit versus your ability to learn? <clears throat> How can we apply that in other educational settings? What is the language that I use with you as I'm teaching you how to knit? She has something really beautiful, I think, that she says, um, everyone laughs at their mistakes and shares joy at their successes. Every one of my students makes a scarf over the semester, and some of them actually become knitters, which is, I just want to sit on that for a little while because it's very moving to me. You think yeah. about you have students who come to school and they're like, I don't know if I belong here. I don't know if I'm like a college student. I'm doing college, but I don't really know if it resonates with me. And then what we do in our profession is we help them become scholars. We help them become critical thinkers and college students. And those two experiences are very different. I go yeah. to college versus I am a scholar and a college student are worlds apart, right? It's a gift to, to get to that place where you see you, you're transformed into this time that I'm in college. This is a very important part of who I am now, yeah. right? Not just going through the motions and... Um, and the vision for that. Great. Yeah, like you you have a professor who started calling you uh, Dr. Boisvert and the yeah. transition in your brain of like, oh, I'm a scholar. I could continue on in my education, right? So yeah. I love that. It's a gift. Becoming a scholar versus going to college. And then her final, her final thing, which I think is so true, is like, hey, anything that you do with your hands while you're in flow becomes a stress relief. So when we're looking at our students and they are overwhelmed and feel anxious and feel stressful, if you will put them in a community of other people, which first of all is, is a way to relieve anxiety and stress, like here are people around you, and you will help them to work with their hands and give them something that is always stretching their brain. Like you're going to learn the next thing and you're going to learn the next thing and you have to concentrate on it and it's just beyond your mastery, right? That is a really simple way to teach your students tons of stuff and decrease their stress. So I think every res hall needs to have a knitting room <laughs> where you can go and hang out and just knit. So really fun. Well, yeah, for sure. I was wondering, Rachel, I don't know if knitting would be your thing that you'd want to teach other people to do. Um, but I was thinking, yeah, that would be pretty fun to have a, the fly fishing group and be able to go through that because you're going to have some who are natural at it and others who are terrible yeah. and to help them get, get become proficient. So I don't know. Do you have a, do you have a, I mean, I would teach cooking 
And yeah. I think it's really interesting because I have done this with somebody who was like, I'm really bad at cooking. And I'm like, okay, just stay close to me and you are going to be amazed at what you can accomplish and you're going to have fun. Like, yes, there's going to be stumbling in it, but also it's going to be really fun at the end. You're going to feel really proud of yourself. So, and I will just say, Rachel is a great, uh, teacher of cooking. My son now makes amazing guacamole. So thank you. And apple pie. Yeah. Guacamole is the easy one. Apple pie <laughs> is the hard one, but he mastered that one. That was good. <laughs> All right. Um, the next one that we have is coming from Scott Bass. I don't know if you remember him, Matt. So I have this book. It's sure. administratively adrift. It is a, this is another one that I've had for a minute. It is very academic writing. So it's taking me a little bit. It is not an easily consumable book in any stretch of the imagination. So I'm very happy that he wrote this article for Red Drive because he's taken some of the things that he talks about in this book and made it a little bit more digestible. Um, he is looking specifically for administrative and support services that are kind of remaining semi-independent and by that, he means it's a model that is not putting the student at the center. So instead of holistic support, they're like, oh, no, our job is this. Our job is this. We do this thing over here. Instead of saying, well, the student is surrounded by all of these things. So how do we make this more holistic? So he said, for too many students, the prevailing service administration can inadvertently add unnecessary <clears throat> layers of frustration and stress. In 2015, he started running focus groups, workshops, retreats, journaling projects, case studies to better understand the student's experience. And on his campus, which is the um, American University in Washington, D.C., he found over 60 pinch points, is what he calls it, that inadvertently chafe students and add stress and anxiety. So they were like, hey, in academic advising, this is frustrating. In financial aid, this is frustrating. Student affairs, registration, right? They just went through and said, here are all the places where I don't understand why the process isn't easier for me. Um, and he, he said they're relaying things like communication problems, lost records, delayed or contradictory responses, misinformation, counterintuitive processes, inefficiencies, all of these things that we talk about with barrier processes, all of these things that you've talked about before in terms of how do we assess our service culture on a campus, right? Yeah. Well, I just think about, you know, we've been doing service blueprinting for a long time. That is a, that's a really important part of, so what he's talking about, finding these 60 pinch points. Um, and I love it because it's through the lens of a student. So yeah. it's the student's lens. This is their walk, their experience. And if you just take a simple process like uh, registering for classes and, and you throw in, this is a student who has an academic and a financial hold, they're on probation and they have to register for classes. Oh, and also they have not yet declared a major. Just put those things together. You and I talk about it in terms of these are the students who are the who are the most at risk, the most barriers. If we can help clear those barriers, then we're solving problems for all the students, right? Yeah. But it, it isn't until you map this thing out that you start to see it. Well, I just was going to say, for sure, that we put the student at the center of that scenario that you've just given us. It's totally overwhelming. But I would also say, as an advisor, that scenario is totally overwhelming, too. Right. Oh, sure. Yeah. So many things. I'm like, well, you can't register for this until you have a major, but then you have to take this. So that changes that. And we've got to get this hold. I can't get you in. The class is going to change. Then we've got like I'm a professional and that overwhelms me, which means that we don't have processes that are lined up. We need to have a clear way to be able to say, I listen, I will help you with this, <laughs> this thing. It's not that I'm dealing with 17 different offices who all are requiring a different thing in a different sort of hierarchy. Can I go on a rift on that? Yes. Okay. So what we're talking about is these 60 pinch points lead to a dissatisfied student, right? And we would say those are the students who likely don't return. And we're trying to increase retention. So our goal is to increase student retention, we look at these are the pain points. 
And then you go back and, and if you go to the beginning, exactly what you said, we have bad system design. If we can address, so now let me, let me start at the beginning. If we address system design and you have excellent service systems, then all of the advisors are happier. And when an advisor is happier, they deliver better service to their students. And when students receive better service and can relate, connect with their advisors, and the advisor isn't having to deal with all this back administrative work, so this yeah. is what we blueprint out, um, that students have no idea what's happening behind the scenes. They have no idea of all the complexity and all the frustration that the advisor feels. So if we fix the systems, we have happy advisors, we have happy students, those students then stay and they become great um, alum, right? Yeah, for sure. So, yeah. It's a system. It's a it's a whole cycle and it starts with great systems and the way that you can identify whether or not you have great systems is walk take the walk through the students uh, shoes yeah. and experience it and start mapping it out. Um, so there's my riff. That's great. So he says you've got to gather data about students from the, the uh, about the student experience from the students and you also need to ask faculty and staff like what is the thing you do that makes you really crazy? Um, and then redesign some of those systems. Uh, he talks specifically about the four key service clusters, which are academics, social life, health, including mental health, and then financial aid, and look at how those things are integrated. I think this is the, um, oh yeah, this is crazy, Matt. He said, look at the information flow for your newest students from different offices before they arrive on campus. At American University several years ago, we learned that we sent an uncoordinated barrage of information after the student's initial deposit, but before arriving on campus, a total of 130 messages from different offices. Can you imagine that? For students, yeah, this signals the culture and they're like, oh my gosh, I don't even know what of these things is important. It's so noisy. I can't do any of it, right? That's so. for another day, you on emails. Because we're not talking about short little messages. We're talking yeah. about, you know, the people who write those, like, here's 25 things you have to do. And yeah. they, yeah. yeah. Okay. So uh, action item there, just think of a process that stinks and redesign it this summer. Ah. I think that that's the right think action. About it. Hey, there's one more thing, though, in, in, in the listening to faculty and staff about it. My favorite part of that is you're going to have great faculty and staff uh, feedback and, and really helpful feedback. But my favorite is when you get this feedback, like that there's this huge gap between what the student's saying and what they think faculty and staff think is happening, right? Where they're like, Oh no, this one's great. We're, we do a great job with this. So yeah, gap right. analysis is another good. big one. Okay. I All have right. rough one. Yeah. I have three rough ones next. So first of all, the uh, this and you guys, I'm telling you this because we're thinking about what your fall semester is going to look like and what you need to be paying attention to this summer. So the education department's Office of Federal Student Aid has a lot of responsibilities relative to its side, the size. Um, its primary job is overseeing the federal government student loan portfolio. Um, it really only represents one third of the education department's staff, but it has that responsibility of the loan portfolio. So yeah. this year, the FSA is expected to help borrowers who have had a three years pause back into repayment. So they haven't had to do that. They're going to have to kind of say like, okay, now the clock is starting again. You need to repay. They're going to have to implement the new income-driven repayment plans and bring millions of defaulted borrowers back into good standing, plus a bunch of other stuff that they have to do. So um, you guys remember, and I'm about to talk about the, the revised FAFSA, which was supposed to happen in October, but because of all the kind of backlog of this office, it's probably not going to happen until December. We'll see. We should put some money on that one. Um, the hardship about that pressing of the timeline is that states are awarding their packages of um, like the what's that their aid packages 
usually they're doing that based on what the FAFSA says it's going to give the student. So you have all of these states that have written into law. You have to tell the student what you're going to award them by the state, which now is kind of messed up because of this change in timeline. The other hardship is that, so this has been in um, the House or Congress going back and forth, like, should we give more money to this office because they have all these things they have to do? Republicans and Democrats actually agreed that they for sure need to give this office more money, but then you know how politics go. It like got all kind of, so the outcome of the latest debate on it was that the office got no new money for this past year. And with inflation, that's an effective price, like a cut, right? So- now, they're very concerned. The first question is, when this agency says FAFSA is going to come out in December, do they mean December 1st or do they mean December 31st? Because that's a really big difference. Um, 55 to 50% of 57% of FAFSA completions by high school seniors are completed by December 31st. So now schools are not going to be able to get back to students until January or February. So schools are going to have to revisit their admissions timeline for the 24-25 cycle. This is especially difficult because our low-income students who maybe haven't navigated this process before, they need more time. And instead, they're going to have two to three months less time. Um, and so just everything that happens because of this change in deadline is going to be something that your financial aid counselors, your admissions counselors are going to have to be looking at for the 24-25 class if indeed we do get the new FAFSA um, pushed out on in December. Um, let's see. I think I had something else interesting to tell you there. Oh, the other thing is because they're so understaffed, um, lots of families, 17.6 million students and parents applying for student aid and calling this office are experiencing multiple hour wait times and reduced call center hours. So they're saying, yeah, it might take weeks to be able to process some of these things. So there's just a lot of difficulty in the fact that this office does not have the kind of staff that it needs. And also, Matt, you know, we say all the time it is very true in technology, but it is true in general in higher education. You either hit your deadline or you've missed it for a year, right? So it's like you either hit your deadline of October or you have just for the entire next year, everything's going to be out of whack because we had two months and then two months and then two. So. I mean, I wish, I wish the department of education saw it that way. Like, Hey, we, we didn't deliver it on time. So we're going to delay it and, a whole year, not just suddenly disrupt. Because what you're saying about if it's December 1st, so December 1st gives them like six weeks into, into the you know next start of spring where there's actually some time to do some work over the holidays. But if it's December 31st, good luck. It's yeah. not going to be easy. One, one other thing that I wanted to tell you about this is that the way they decide how to fund this office for the next year is they look at the volume of FAFSAs and they say, okay, well, in October, our, the volume of FAFSAs was up 5%. So we have to at least give them an increase to be able to support this 5% uh, in, increase in volume, right? We have to give them more money so they can address that. Well, they're not going to have it in October. We won't know what the volume is until December sometime. And so then it throws the entire budgeting off because they're not able to get it in the budget for that cycle. It's just, this is one of those things where it's unintended consequences, right? You just keep pushing it back. And we have a couple of those things where our schools are just in hardship because they don't have the guidance they need to be able to spend the summer to set up things to be successful. So that's something that I think we need to pay very close attention to because there's a lot of ramifications of that one. Oh, I mean, the impact on admissions right now, just that, you know, pull go, that you yeah. have with, with families and trying to get them going. So, yeah, it definitely puts a hardship on, on admissions counselors and strain on the overall system university. Okay, related. Um, I've been talking about the new FAFSA um, for the last couple of weeks that they're going to roll out. They're trying to figure out when they're going to do that. We just talked about that. However, this is a really interesting article that's coming out of the Brookings Institution posted on Inside Higher Ed where they're talking about what are the changes that are going to happen for FAFSA. 
And the kind of word on the street has been that all of the changes in this FAFSA simplification process are really about technical changes, process changes. We want to make it more easy for the families to fill out. Right. That's what we, they have been talking about for a long time. Well, this um, man, I can't find his name at the moment. Oh, here we go. Uh, Levine, who's a non-resident fellow with the Brookings Center on Children and Family Studies, worked with Jill Deshawn, a senior policy analyst at the National Association of Student Financial Aid Administration, to dig into this new FAFSA so they can start training financial aid counselors, so that financial aid counselors can start talking to the parents and students about it. And he said, I was very surprised when I started focusing on the details of the FAFSA simplification, how much potential impact it would have on how many students uh, would have to pay to go to college. He said he supports the idea of making the application easier to use, but when he looked at the details of the changes that were actually being made, he realized this is a big deal. It's not just about making the form easier, it's about changing prices. So two, sorry, do you wanna add something to that? Well, it's more, keep going. Okay, so there's two basic things that are going to happen. The first thing is that the people who, the students who are eligible for Pell Grant uh, loans, those students are going to get an increase of budget by $1.6 million. So that's going to affect about 100, what? Oh, sorry, $1.6 billion. Thank you. <laughs> You're like, that's pretty small. So that is going to affect 174,000 students with an increase of money for them. The pool is going to be $1.6 billion. So that's good news for them. Matt, I think you did the math on that. It is how much per student? Um, $1,500. Is that what you told me? I didn't do the math on that one. Oh, okay. Sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. So. Wait, you said there's 174,000 students. Yes. And 1.6 billion. Mm -hmm. I did do the math on that one. I just found my paper, oh. my, my little note. <laughs> but it's but it's $9,195 per. So, I mean, that's pretty significant. Yeah, for sure. For, for 174,000 students, which is about half of the students who enroll at Arizona State. So eligibility for institution no. grant aid. I said that wrong. Okay. Twice as many as Arizona State. Eligibility for institutional grant aid is also going to increase by $3.7 billion. So there's 2 million students who are continuously eligible for that aid. Um, they're going to get some extra money. And then it's going to add another 160,000 students to those that are eligible for that grant aid. Okay. Here's the hard news. For students who have siblings in college... In the current formula, families with more than one family see a discount um, to what they're expected to pay out of pocket. For families like with two children in college, the contribution is cut in half for every child. That discount is going away. So for the almost million students with one sibling in college who are going to maintain their eligibility, they're going to lose about $3,000 each in institutional grant aid. And then another 157,000 will lose eligibility that could have provided almost $8,000 uh, in grant aid. So they're taking the money from there and kind of applying it to this other. Um, not that's not what they're saying, but that's kind of how that the math of that works out. So you guys, this is important because students who are in college right now, when this takes effect, it is going to affect them. So you have students on campus right now that when they get their bills after this comes into effect, they're going to be really surprised at the net increase for them. And institutions have to be thinking about what are they going to do to either mitigate that or just pass that along to students. But I think we're going to see a really big impact on groups of students who made a plan to pay for college, given that $8,000 uh, benefit every year, right? And now they don't have it. So be looking for that. That's another summer project. Pay attention to where do we have money to, to be able to supplement some of these. Hey, Rachel. So I took a whole trip because I, I have one child in college about to have another. And so this kind of affects me. Yeah. But um, for our 
schools, this is important. How many of our schools know whether or not their students enrolled have siblings going to college? Okay, so you might you might know if they both go to your institution, but but I want you to think about a, a large family. Let's say a family of of five college bound kids um, or two. Do you even know if the students enrolled at your school have a sibling? Because if they do, they're going to have a financial hit. And the financial hit is going to be $3,000 or as much as $7,900. So, so the first question over the summer, and I hate this to put this on your special projects, but how would we know if they have a sibling who's about to go to college or in college? because they're about to have that hit. And then the next question is, so are we tracking it? And then what you said, how do we support these students who are about to see uh, a significant drop in their aid? Yeah, for sure. Okay, I have two more rough ones that I wanna talk about. So Title IX, you guys will remember that last summer we had the Title IX was going to be the new Title IX processes were going to be delivered in April, and then they were going to be delivered in May, and then they actually got delivered in June, which didn't give us a lot of time to get ready for the spring semester. So now we um, remember in June they proposed they gave like the proposal like this is what we think the regulatory proposal. Comments were open until September. They had 210 comments. Higher Education Associates uh, Associations praised the plan for flexibility of how they were going to be able to manage uh, sexual misconduct cases. Critics said it's going to remove due process. In January, the current administration is supposed to or published its agenda indicating that it is going to give us our final Title IX rules in May of 2023. So same timeline that they had for last year. Maybe they'll hit it this, but that will mean next month that you will get those regulations. What is that final piece? Um, so hopefully they hit that timeline so that then you will have time in order to prepare for your student conduct and Title IX things um, for the fall. So you just want to be paying attention to that because it's going to be, I think, very different than what the current regulations are. So that's pretty difficult. Keep our uh, eye on that one. Yep. And then the last one that I want to talk about is just this idea of direct admission. This is another one that I think is so interesting. Direct admission is when soon to be graduate, uh, soon to be high school graduates are accepted into a college university before ever having to admit uh, submit an application. So it's built so that high school students have an easier time of getting into college. You can imagine, like if you have an agreement with the school, you just say like, if they graduate from your school with a GPA of this, they're automatically admitted into our campus. In some cases, this is really helpful because like a student might get a letter in the mail that says, hey, congratulations, you're admitted. And they're like, oh, actually never considered going to college before. This might change kind of the direction, right? But this, I think, is going to be a little bit sticky. This is becoming more and more common. You actually can have like it be contingent on SAT or, or ACT or high school GPA. You can make a direct agreement with a particular school or a particular school district. So let's say you had men underrepresented at your campus. You could go to an all-men school and say, if you graduate with a GPA of 3.5, you're automatically admitted. There are some things in there that make that feel a little bit yucky. And I think that there are going to be more regulations put on that. I'm not sure we fully understand the implications of being able to do this direct admissions. Um, so I would just keep that. That's one that I'm kind of keeping an eye on because I, I think there's some pretty significant implications to that. I agree. There are some great models of that. So yeah, for you know, sure. community colleges and to like, I think James Madison University has great pipelines. Yeah, uh, so. I think, um, Idaho launched this where it's like any school or any, if you graduate from any high school, you have direct admissions into some specific colleges. Their college enrollment grew by 8%, which is great. We want to make sure that students have an opportunity to get into college and then also be successful. So I think it's interesting. I think there's just, we've got to play with it a little bit. Yeah. Um, okay. 
the last things I want to say, you remember how I told you Vermont State University was going to have an all digital library and then they're like, oh, yeah. Yeah. They like pulled it back. And then just this week, their president stepped down and he was the one in charge of that initiative. So that has not turned out great for them. So I'll be really interested to hear kind of what the overall um, side of that is. And yeah. this last one is the one that makes me happy. And the reason that we are, I want to land the plane on State of the Union. Matt, right. Because there are so many things beyond our control. There are so many big things we have to think about and things we have to maneuver through for our students. And we need to be higher education professionals and keep our eye on what's happening in politics and in finances and in the world. And right, we need to keep our eye on that. But as you and I were talking about this, we were just saying like, there's so many gigantic problems to solve. And then I thought about all of the people who listen to us and how they are solving real problems every day when they sit with their students. Absolutely. They mentor them, they talk to them, they guide them through. Those are real problems that you're solving, right? And so there's all this stuff we can get distracted about, but there's also just the joy of being with students. And so this article is called The Case for Having Class Outside. And it's talking about this time of the semester. I'm pretty sure everybody has had this experience where you come to class and your teacher says, we're going to have class outside, right? And the feeling of joy, like spring is here, we're going to do something different. It's good for your mental health. This article is like, was my class 10% less productive than my indoor class? For sure, because there were planes and there were noises of people walking by. But it was 100% happier for all of my students. And so this idea in State of the Union that there is macro State of the Union and there is micro State of the Union, which is who are the students you talked to today? Who did you empower? Who did you do that mentoring with? And you know that it is going to have an impact on their life that is lasting. And that's actually how we change the world, right? That's how we change the state of the union by being present with our students every day. So awesome. Thank you guys for joining me. Um, and we look forward to more conversations. Have a great day. Bye.